Hello and welcome to the Weird Sisters Podcast, your source for Discworld discussion. I'm your host, Manning, the Combination Harvester. Joining me is Danny, the Division Harvester. Technically, it's Tom Clancy's The Division Harvester. And Liz, the Multiplication Harvester. Use me and you'll have more wheat than you planted. Our book this month is Reaper Man, the story of what happens when death retires. First thoughts? I liked it. It was a lot of fun, like, all the way through. But it's, like, honestly, it's kind of, like, a little bit more of, like, a somber book. It touches on some, like, kind of heavy things and, like, existential things. But it's, like, I don't know. I kind of finished it. It was one of those books where I just, like, felt a little teary-eyed, even though it wasn't a sad ending. Yeah, it was, it was that kind of, for me, it was kind of that sad feeling. But I felt, I felt fulfilled at the same time. Mm-hmm. With, with just the main plot, like, the actual, the title plot, anyway. The, the side stories I kind of fell in and out of for various different reasons, but I think the, the, the main points of the book got through. Well, now, let's dance on down to Trivia Town, as provided by the secret extra sister who lives behind the cuckoo door on Azriel's clock. Published in 1991 and clocking in at just under 75,000 words, Reaper Man is the 11th Discworld book and the second in the Death series. In classic Terry fashion, the title is a reference to the 1984 Alex Cox movie Repo Man, which itself is a play on the term Reaper Man as the title for the Grim Reaper. The the text plays heavily with the medium of print, notably including massive scrawled letters for the mall, broken lines for the sentences sliced by the scythe, and famously, Terry claimed that he wrote an extra 400 words in order to ensure that a specific word be on the left-hand page and therefore take the reader by surprise. This was botched in the UK paperback version, but corrected for the American release. Reaper Man was translated into Dutch in 1995, then into both German and French in 1998. Speaking of translation, it turns out that several translations of previous books characterized death as a woman, since the word for death is feminine in several Romance languages. But by the time of Reaper Man, the character had been codified as male. Trans rights! Hell yes. (laughs) In 1996, part of the novel was adapted by Cosgrove Hall into the eight-minute animated short film, Welcome to the Discworld, with Christopher Lee as death, the first time he took the role. It came in at number 126 on the 2004 Big Read survey. The audiobook, released in 2005, is narrated by Tony Robinson and lasts eight and a half hours. Before we delve into it, how would you two rate the startability of Reaper Man, scale of 1 to 10? We did say that it was kind of a somber one to start with. It had that, you know, emotional, fulfilling kind of properties with some wacky hijinks in the background. But I would have to give it a a 3. Not very startable. Death's characterization can probably be better understood in other books, at least in uh, at least related to the world as a whole. And the side plots are a little far out there if you don't already have a grasp of what it means to be on the disc world. I think all that's fair. I definitely kind of put it not insignificantly higher. I was going to say like a seven or an eight, just because I think this book like really stands on its own very well because it does definitely help to understand the context of the wizards and why it's important that like death 
comes for wizards specifically or any of the other like myriad of things. But I don't know. It just feels very like it is its own thing. It is not like always making references to other books. And also there's so much of what's great about the Discworld series in here. Like deep lines out of nowhere, a lot of puns and silly concepts played completely seriously. Mm -hmm. Those were quite excellent as always. (laughs) Yeah, I do think this one does speak to more of like a specific kind of person as their first book. So I don't think I'd recommend it to everybody as the first book if you were just going to pick up Discworld. But I do think it's like up there. Well, I mean, the point of the startability like discussion is how much of a spoiler warning we want to give people. Ah, uh, I feel like as we go farther into the series, the startability, ex- aside from maybe the one-off books, is going to drop, especially as characters get more developed within their respective series. Yeah, fair. I suppose that covers it then. So, without further ado, let's dive into Reaper Man. Our story begins in a place far beyond the edge of space where Azrael, lord of all deaths, is listening to the words of three ethereal figures in grey robes. We'll probably come back to Azrael near the end, but the hooded figures are the important part here. These are the auditors of reality, in charge of making sure that gravity works, and stars burn, and things like that. And if there's one thing they hate, it's feelings. Oh no, how terrible. (laughs) Pratchett's take on how you deal with existence without having emotion is a concept that I think he did pretty pretty darn well on. It's one that I'd personally like to explore. Should I take up any series of my own? I like the auditors. I kind of wish we got to see him maybe a couple more times in the book. Just to kind of get, I think, a better sense of who they are and... Especially has how death feels about them. Yeah, they did kind of come off as uh, omnipresent. Is that the right word? Not omnipotent. They're not. They're not like deities. Yeah, just always there. But they definitely had a lot of power. Intimidating. That was the word. They came off as omnipresent and intimidating. To me, the auditors are the ultimate expression of rejecting humanity, both external and internal, which is a major theme of the series. It's especially pronounced in their gag of coming undone whenever they express individuality, which is an exaggeration of a common trait in authoritarian organizations, where those who don't toe the party line are harshly punished. In this way, they're a dark mirror to death, who is fascinated by humans and willing to learn from them. And mirror antagonists are my jam! Yeah. (laughs) You are to mirror antagonists as I am to characters who are foils of each other, whether they're on opposite sides or working together. (laughs) There's some heavy overlap in those two tropes. Yeah. But it's so wonderful. The auditors kind of really bring out a lot of the philosophical things and tones that Death's character gets into in this book. And I don't know, that was really interesting to see. Just in that opening scene really set up death's arc throughout this book because the way they spoke to each other the way they interacted their rejection of humanity of feeling it was easy to infer that's what they wanted death to be in this in this thing which is why they did what they did later on as we will come to talk about but as a reader that idea that that's what they wanted death to be this this 
emotionless existence, this I- this emotionless idea really repulsed me, and not in a disgust kind of way, but in in a magnetic way. The auditors come to death with a lifetimer. His. He is being forced into retirement, and as a parting gift, will get a short span of life before a new death arises from the fabric of belief to take his place. Death says goodbye to his manservant, Albert, and makes his way to the Discworld. Danny, you weren't here for Mort, and as I recall, your copy of The Light Fantastic was missing the scene in Death's Domain, so this is your first time actually reading about this particular slice of the Discworld. Any thoughts? Many, many thoughts. It would take too long to (laughs) concisely get them all out. If I were to say all of my thoughts about finally experiencing Discworld's death, the first half hour would probably just be yelling mindlessly, which I can't (laughs) do on a podcast. I'm certain I don't recall my exact words, but I know I have expressed that I just love the characterization of death in most any kind of media, especially as a being that can walk around and interact with people, but just especially a death that understands the value of his, her, or their job no matter what. And to me, that was this story. It was death's truly coming to grips with with his role and what it means to be death, especially getting to experience life. But yes, this death is a good death, and beyond the fun text manipulation with his speech and with the other instances in this book, to me, it's just the kind of character you would hope to be the embodiment of your own end. Long story short, I really like him a lot. Death is a really interesting character on his own, independent of like any other characters in the Discworld books, but I think he especially shines through in this one because of his interactions with people. And I think that's what it made him stick out so much in Mort too, is him interacting with humans and how humanity impacts him and how he views his responsibilities. The first clue was that he was actually good to Albert. I liked Albert. Albert doesn't really get much time to shine. So that's, I think, one point against starting with this book. There's no context for death having a servant. You just kind of have to roll with it. That's been Discworld for me in its entirety. Just roll with it. (laughs) It makes it more enjoyable, actually. Just like, oh, this is happening. What happens next? At Unseen University, the premier wizard college in the great city of Ankh-Morpork, we join Windle Poons, the oldest wizard in the university, which is saying a lot. He is going to die tonight, and the rest of the faculty are throwing him a traditional going-away party. This scene is really funny because Wendell was the old man in the wheelchair, the old, the wizard in moving pictures, wasn't he? Yep, he was. Yeah, and so getting to see very in close succession how his character is like, you know what? I'm I'm ready to like peace out. It feels like the camera just like shifted angle to him for this scene, and it was like it was really fun. I don't know if it would have had the same impact if we hadn't read them so close together. Yeah, it was definitely a funny scene. I liked how unnerved most of the wizards were. This wasn't something they were used to, and I really enjoyed how it was kind of like a darker spin on a retirement party. 
It was also kind of funny how they were having their little party around Wendell, who, granted, given his age, couldn't really understand half of what they were saying, half of what was going on. But it was it was amusing, nevertheless. The wizards are mostly characters from previous Discworld books, although I'd say the only recognizable one is really Arch-Chancellor Ridkali returning from moving pictures. I do want to draw attention to the Bursar, who in the previous book was clever and just a little vindictive, and now has become a lot more absent-minded. I don't mind spoiling for the two of you that this trend continues in later books, to the point where Ankh-Morporkians start saying go Bursar, where we would say go crazy. <laughs> oh, there's also the bit where Wendell talks about how he's planning to reincarnate as a woman, and I just want to mention to anyone listening, if you want to be a man or woman, you can just do that. Don't wait for death to fix it. Dead on. And that's one to grow on, kids. Mm-hmm. For Wendell's sake, though, if he does reincarnate as a woman, I hope he has a great time of it. Speaking of dying, Wendell does indeed pass away right on schedule, but death does not appear. With nowhere to go, Wendell marches his spirit back into his body and rises from the dead. <laughs> we need some, like, thunderclaps <laughs> in the background. This is where Wendell gains an actual character beyond old man. As a walking corpse, he finds that he can think clearly and move more ably than he ever could while he was alive, which is an interesting take on it. Yeah, and I think it really speaks to what Death says later in this book, and maybe he said it before too, but you kind of are as old as you think you are, so once you're dead, you can kind of just be whatever you want. What I think gets implied, if not outright stated, is that the body does have a lot of impact on the mind, especially the way the the brain can get sort of fogged up and clouded, and how much of the mind's processing power is devoted unconsciously to maintaining bodily functions and things. Mm-hmm. Without that, you're using your entire mind for thinking. To me, that that falls unto, into a, more of a dream state. In a, in a dream, your hmm. mind is uninhibited, especially if you can lucid dream. You're, you can do essentially whatever you want, but when you're, when you're up and awake, that brain fog can get really bad, um, and you're always worried about the state of your health as well, which can impact things. It took me this long, and Wendell getting back up, for me to realize, oh hey, this is a zombie book. We're getting into the undead. I think Terry Pratchett was bored of ghosts at this point. I would be too. But this is a lot more fun anyway. Elsewhere in Ankh-Morpork, the ever-opportunistic salesman cut me on throat Dibbler discovers that a treasure trove of trinkets has materialized in his cellar. Thousands of snow globes containing miniature replicas of city landmarks. Dibbler wastes no time in selling these to delighted citizens. Ah, Dibbler. Where would this series be without him? I can say, like, I did not realize while reading through it, at, especially when they were first introduced, that they were snow globes. And, like, multiple scenes passed, and then I was like, oh, okay, that's... Okay, I get it now. Far from Ankh-Morpork, Death arrives at an old, neglected farmhouse owned by the elderly spinster Renata Flitworth. Miss Flitworth is definitely an archetypical Pratchett character. She's a no-nonsense old woman with nerves of steel and a sharp tongue. She doesn't really come into her own until about halfway through the story, but once she does, I'd say she embodies a lot of the qualities that Death most admires in humans. Intelligence, force of will ability to adapt and grow, and a sense of camaraderie and community, up to and including giving up their own lives for others. 
I love her. Mm-hmm. I had a hard time pinning down her age. Like, she knew she was old, and at times she used that to her advantage, but she she definitely had more liveliness than, well, definitely more liveliness than Wendell when at his age. <laughs> I did really appreciate her speech about her fiancé vanishing in the mountains, and how life wanted her to just be, like, wearing the wedding dress and pining after him, but she refused to do so. Yeah, that those moments were, like... Some of those really real moments in this book. And I I think she provided a good, like, grounding for Death's arc in this book. Yeah, grounding actually in almost a literal way. Because Death is kind of, kind of free-floating. He doesn't know what to do with his life. And then she's incredibly down to earth she runs a farm and she's she's not gonna put up with any of his bs death has come to miss flitworth's farm because he needs something to do and she has a help wanted sign on her fence he panics for a minute when she asks him his name eventually settling on the perfectly normal moniker of bill door <laughs> could be worse they could exchange that uh, that entryway for a different one one out in the yard he could be a gate now that you point that out, it must be intentional, right? Like Bill Gates. That would have been a very different story, I would think. Honestly, I was wondering, like, what was the inspiration for Bill Door? One thing that a part of me wonders about, wouldn't it have been nice to have, like, at least a scene where Death thinks about going to see Morton Isabel? Yeah, I was kind of wondering about that, because I wasn't entirely sure if this book came after all of that, like, if these books kind of takes place in chronological order too and then he like mentions her not by name but it would have been nice to just be like oh he's gonna like kind of go check in back in Ankh-Morpork we meet Mrs. Cake the precognitive busybody her werewolf daughter Ludmilla and one man Bucket Mrs. Cake's ghostly spirit guide Lots to talk about here, so I'll try and burn through a few of my thoughts real quick. The thing of a psychic having a Native American spirit guide was in Good Omens as well, and I thought it was just a weird trope, but apparently it's a thing that professional psychics do in real life to this day, and there's a lot to unpack there, but let's just throw away the suitcase. That was one of the things that kind of pulled me out of the book a little bit. (sighs) Sums it up. Yeah. That's a pretty accurate statement. It is a funny moment when Mrs. Cake smashes a vase so that he can use it to hit another ghost. Yes, I love that. That is a a gag I do really like in this book, how Mrs. Cake, like, kills, air quotes, that thing so that one man bucket can have it. The gag of killing an object at all is incredibly wonderful. Excellent use of physical humor. Metaphysical humor. Also, the bit of Mrs. Cake talking to people while she's seeing the future and her responding to questions before they're asked is something that I think would actually work better in an adaptation where the actors could add an extra layer of comedic value through tone and expressions. Just reading the book, you have to kind of go back and reread to get the correct tone of voice, just bounce up and down the the conversation like a ladder. That aspect of it might also be worse in like a movie or something where you were going back and forth in the conversation. Yeah, an actor could probably portray it portray it better since they know what's happening and they've gone through the script a, a bit more. Mrs. Cake's attitude towards her daughter frustrates me. It has some of the hallmarks of child abuse, the way that she confines Lidmilla to her room and has that condescending 
mother-knows-best attitude. There's not much useful to say beyond pointing out that this is an unhealthy scenario and does not meaningfully get resolved. To me, the role of the parent is to help their child grow and gain agency, something that I think Mrs. Cake does not do for Ludmilla, and I would prefer if the story had addressed that. Especially because I don't know how much of a child Ludmilla necessarily is. I kind of had her like maybe mid-teens originally, but I think I was definitely imagining her even older than that by the end of it. Yeah, she was definitely a young adult in my mind as well. Yeah, like an adult. I'm kind of close to a situation like that. I'm an outsider, but I am kind of close to a similar situation. So this did hit a little close to home for me. And I do wish also that it had been meaningfully resolved. But wasn't there also something in the book that said that if Ludmilla was invited to something automatically that in that invited her mother as well? That just, no, please no. The rest of that quote is that there's, like, no force on Earth that could stop something like that. So I don't know if necessarily Terry Pratchett is, like, totally cool with it. I think he probably recognizes some of the problematic aspects of that. If you'll permit me to put on my fanfic writer hat, I would love a scene where Mrs. Cake and Ludmilla have a falling out, during which Mrs. Cake is pre-responding to Ludmilla's arguments, and at the end of it, Ludmilla storms off, at which point Mrs. Cake reveals that she was not actually using her precognition, but simply supplying Ludmilla with the opportunity to voice feelings that she would not have willingly acknowledged on her own. Yeah, that would be very interesting. There's there's something in that vein that could work. Yeah, it, it definitely it definitely could, and that would be nice to see. But that also would imply that Mrs. Cake knows what she's doing. Ah, why can't we just have happy endings? Anyway, Mrs. Cake sees what is about to happen to Ankh-Morpork and heads out to tell the wizards of the university, but they are preoccupied forcing Windlepoons into a coffin and burying him at, in lieu of a crossroads, one of the city's major intersections. (laughs) (laughs) While doing so, they see that the entire city is bursting with life, and not in the normal way at springtime of flowers blooming and couples coupling. Inanimate objects around the city are becoming animate, causing untold havoc. Shortly thereafter, the patrician of Ankhmorpork, Lord Vetinari, summons the wizards along with various priests and guild leaders to figure out what's happening. Sadly, none of them have listened to Mrs. Cake, so they have no clue. Was anybody else just laughing about how nonchalant Windle was about how, oh, yep, we're gonna we're gonna rebury me. This is fine, well, and dandy. He's very accommodating. <laughs> and then later, all seeing all the leaders in one place with Lord Vetinari, that was just kind of a yes moment. Just like, hey, I recognize that guild leader in passing. Ah, it's the Guild of Assassins! Yay! I enjoy things that I remember. My one question, though, is what's the relationship between the priest and Ridcully? They're brothers. That's what I thought. That's my assumption from context, but yeah. Windlow Poons, bored and lonely in his coffin, finds a note on the inside. The Fresh Start Club, 668 Elm Street. This is where he meets Reg Shue civil rights activist, and zombie. Reg Shu, uh, whose name is easier to spell than it is to say out loud, is a character I feel, like, conflicted about. What do you two think of him? I think he's really obviously, like, a character. And as a result, he seems really one note. 
And I get what the point of his character is. He's supposed to be like the thing that brings all of the other undead characters in this book together. But he's just not the most interesting among the bunch, so. Yeah, he's that character that has strong intentions inclined towards good. Oh, heck, where was I going with this? I had this all planned out in my head. Yeah, he's the character who has strong intentions, mostly inclined towards good and while I believe if he had had time to just keep going on with what he was going on, he might have been able to build a small community at, in some shape or another. But just going by my inferring of what was going to happen later, you knew it was doomed from the start. It feels kind of frustrating in the current context of reading this book that he's so pathetic and pitied by the other members of the Fresh Start Club and that the narrative seems to be mocking his campaign for undead rights. Laughing at someone for seeming to find problems where you don't see any is a really privileged attitude to take. Call me a liberal snowflake if you must, but sometimes people protest the status quo because it's unjust, and you not feeling oppressed doesn't necessarily mean that everything is fine. But I digress. I do think it was really interesting that the Fresh Start Club was like an established thing before death was replaced. Oh, it was? Yeah, because Wendell Poons is Wendell Poons in this book because Death didn't come get him, but everybody else was already like that. There are characters who kind of like give their backstory a little bit and they kind of make it seem like they've been like that for a long while. I was under the impression that Reg was another one of those people who, didn't he die? I thought he died at the beginning of the book, but was also one of the people who didn't get picked up by Death. Now, at the beginning of the book, he was actually painting Undead Rights graffiti. Oh, so he was, like, he had been doing this for the whole time. Okay. Yeah, that throws things into a slightly new light. The other members of the Fresh Start Club include Ixalite, the mute banshee, Schleppel, the agoraphobic boogeyman, Lupine, the reverse werewolf, and Count and Countess Natfarauto. These characters represent the introduction of horror tropes to Discworld, which up until now has been largely focused on Tolkien-esque fantasy. There were some slight allusions to these ideas in previous books, but this is basically how Terry Pratchett introduces new elements to the series. He just plonks them down front and center and says, deal with it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Obviously with an English accent. <laughs> yeah. In the earlier books, it was more of an, an existential, otherworldly kind of horror. This is this is adding more of what we can easily recognize to it. Slightly more gothic horror. Yes. And I must say, I love a band of misfits. You imagine if this story focused a lot more on the Fresh Start Club and like, the found family trope? That could be just a joy to read. I want to draw special attention to the Notfuratos. Uh, vampires, as they have been codified in the cultural consciousness, are basically a metaphor for sexuality and the parasitic nature of the aristocracy. So middle-aged and middle-class vampires is a solid gag. It's very Python, really. And I especially like that Doreen is not exactly a vampire. And something about them, especially her, really reminds me of the What We Do in the Shadows TV show. She's just so down to be a vampire. She she has this very, very high standards for what it means to be a vampire and just really wants to uphold that. And absolutely does not. Nope. <laughs> yeah. Like building a second-rate crypt in their backyard. <laughs> but also just her being, like, 
short and plump when a vampire, <laughs> when a countess is supposed to be like Morticia, Morticia Adams. Adams. It's also interesting to imagine werewolves as a type of undead. Like That concept doesn't really get explored in this story, but it makes intuitive sense to me. Maybe I just don't know all the like backstory behind things, but I don't know if boogeymen are necessarily undead. So I don't think the werewolf is necessarily alone and like not exactly explicitly fitting underneath that definition, but still being Oh, there. that's right. I don't think a banshee is either. Yeah, so I think maybe Terry Pratchett's playing a little fast and loose with her undead, or maybe Ragshoe is just really open to whoever wants to join. I think the second part is a little bit more what it's going for, really. After speaking with Lupine and Schleppel after the club meeting, Windlepoons resolves to visit Mrs. Cake and learn more about what is happening. He also notices strange wire wheelbarrows have started popping up around the city. And, probably unrelated, the snow globes seem to be turning up smashed. Meanwhile, Bill Dorr has been bonding with the townspeople, especially Miss Flitworth and a little girl named Sal. Then, the inn catches on fire with Sal trapped inside. At first, Bill Dorr stays by his old philosophy of dispassionate duty. But when Miss Flitworth confronts him about it, he rushes into the fire and saves the child by sharing his remaining time with her. With Sal's life hanging in the balance, Bildor realizes he has to get his old job back or die trying. I loved Sal's dialogue very much. I appreciate that, like, children in this book, maybe more of the Discworld books, can kind of see through Death's facade. Whereas the adults kind of trick themselves into not seeing him. The kids are like, no, that's a skeleton. While that is happening, Windle, Lupine, and Schleppel make their way to Mrs. Cake's house. There they learn the truth about the snow globes. Their eggs, now hatching into trolleys, which is an intermediate step before they become something much bigger. It took me far too long to realize what the trolleys were i kept i kept picturing them as like a wire woven basket with wheels stuck on the bottom i feel like i was in a similar position the first time i read this book yeah i don't know how much of it might be like the slight differences in like english english and american english if that's part of it definitely has something to do with it a non-zero contribution bill door Knowing that the new death will come for him soon, prepares to fight it. He sharpens his scythe with a whetstone, with a cloth, with silk, cobweb, and even the light of the sun, until it has an edge beyond belief. Then he takes the scythe to the blacksmith Simnel, with instructions that it be killed. Simnel agrees, but also eagerly shows off his new machine. A device for thoughtlessly, mercilessly, and relentlessly carving grand swaths of wheat from the field as fast as a war sweeps across nations. The Combination Harvester. Yes. <laughs> we didn't touch on this earlier, but when Bill Dorr, Death, is like first working at uh, Flint, Miss Flintworth's farm, she asks him to like cut the field, cut the grain, and he does it grain by grain. One stalk at a time. And he seems, like, abhorred by the idea of he doing it any other way. And he does it quickly, too. He's also had a lot of practice. 
isn't there also a, a kind of a background scene later on where he takes on the combination harvester and almost beats it? It's a twist on a classic story. And it does really call back to the whole death versus the auditors thing. It does. Yeah, it's craftsmanship versus mindlessness, but also different expressions of loss of personality. Wanted to also mention a line that Simnel has about the scythe. It's a work of art. More than that, it's a work of craft. And that stuck with me. This book is chock full of real good lines. It is. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Like earlier on with the scene in the fire, it's like Beldora says, I don't know about right or wrong, only places to stand. Rereading it for this podcast, I was just like, oh, that's good. Back in Ankh-Morpork, Ludmilla joins once Lupine and Schleppel as they further investigate the trolleys. But soon, all of the trolleys begin joining together, fusing and reshaping, until they create a hideous new structure of massive halls, cold omnipresent light, and black stairwells that pull you from floor to floor like a frog's tongue pulling a fly to its jaw. The influx of life has facilitated the birth of a grand parasite. A tapeworm in the belly of the city. The shopping mall. Oddly enough, a species that is currently going extinct. One of the themes of both this story and moving pictures from last month is modernization and the way that it can feel like an insidious supernatural thing acting to supplant the natural order. But the root of this is not simply that new things are bad. These stories are exercises in defamiliarizing capitalism. By depicting Maul in terms of an alien invasion story, its hideous nature becomes more clearly recognized. Yeah, and then that's especially driven home because, like, the Maul plays, the characters, like, are even hesitant to call it music, but that music is hypnotizing to all of the humans, like, and, like, calls to them and puts them in, like, an entranced state. It's interesting that that's a theme coming up. Because I guess we're also so used to this fantasy setting, we don't want it to change. But there's a lot to be said about exploring an urban fantasy setting. I just, I just don't think it's going to happen here. Well, not quite the way that you get it in the Dresden Files. So, the new death is stalking Bildor, who scoffs at the drama. Bill runs into the smithy only to find that Simnel did not destroy the scythe as requested. So, Bill cannot use the scythe's ghost as a weapon against the new death. It honestly took me by surprise the first time I read this book that the reason Death wanted the scythe destroyed was so that he could have the ghost of it. Once I read that line of what it did not contain was the ghost of a scythe, it's like, oh... Right, because the thing that was in the earlier scenes. <laughs> yeah, Miss Cake's mm -hmm. vase was excellent foreshadowing. And the ghost of the alcohol that one man bucket then drinks. <laughs> oh yeah, I wonder what that would taste like. You ever had bananas foster en flambe? Just remove the bananas. Bill Dor and Miss Flitworth retreat to the farm, and Bill's fear and scorn turn to rage when the new death lowers his cowl to reveal a crown. This, I think, is an interesting glimpse into Death's past. We know that he's been around for as long as there was life in the universe of the Discworld, but it's implied, or possibly stated, and I just missed where it was, that his personality is relatively peaceful, 
because it was formed in a time when people didn't fear and reject the concept of dying the way they do during the time of the Discworld stories. The new death is formed from the minds of people who are much more scared of dying, and as a result, is a sort of nemesis for the concept of living. Yes, this, but also... This was something I had been thinking about earlier when we were talking about, like, the mindless machine and what it is the auditors wanted from death. They were never going to get it. This this death is mindless, but still has a personality. Oh, it's not mindless. So, yeah, not entirely mindless. Not even slightly mindless. He chooses a crown for himself because he says he plans to rule. Maybe a better way of phrasing it is apathetically dedicated to the job. Because he, he doesn't care at all about about the people. He made it a game, in fact, of striking down the old Death. In this part of the book, and I think it becomes a little bit more apparent later, like, Death's compassion and his, like, tranquility with his role in the universe is what makes him the better Death, the, like, right Death, even regardless of what the auditors would think about it. I, I like the metaphor of the gentle embrace of death rather than anything else, so I am very emotionally attached to a caring death. This guy made me angry. Oh yeah. Just before the new death can strike Bill down, Miss Flitworth summons her own lifetimer and uses it to give Bill some of her time, just as he did for Sal. Which is really cool, because she has no, like, magical ability. She's not a witch or a wizard or anything. She just figures out how to do this through sheer force of caring about Bill. Sheer force of not putting up with anybody's BS. (laughs) Very true. (laughs) And I think it also, again, kind of grounds death. It's like he is this otherworldly being, but he's not doing anything that anybody else can't necessarily really do. Still a person who can be cared about. Very well put. So, Bill takes up a normal farm scythe and, with pure fury, cuts away the crown and dissipates the form of New Death, reclaiming the role. But, New Death isn't finished yet. In fact, he's got a brand new combine harvester, and he won't (laughs) give you the key. The Harvester Death lunges towards our death, but falls to pieces before it can reach him, since Bill sabotaged it earlier that day. Yes. That scene was very fun. I like your note on it. This whole fight is so cool. Whole note. (laughs) The fact that his super-sharpened, pre-prepared, otherworldly almost weapon wasn't what he needed really made this whole thing better. The fact that he took up the scythe he had used already to cut Miss Flitworth's fields to, you know, the the one that had his his hard work behind it was actually more effective against this death than the sharpened one would have been simply because it has that force of personality behind it. There's probably also a version of this story where the ultra sharp scythe was actually death's way of being of showing a modicum of mercy because like like a dull blade hurts more when it cuts you i hadn't thought of that i was just uh i was kind of taken over the whole like the town likes him as bill door at the same time i think that the scene of death sharpening his scythe to be able to cut through sentences is still useful to the narrative because it shows that he 
is taking steps to prepare because it's implied very heavily that he is afraid and he's feeling fear in a way that he has never done so before. Fear and determination to an extent as well. Yeah, I think you guys are totally right on that. Plus it's also a great kind of a bonding experience that Miss Flitworth sacrifices some of the silk that she has. Yeah, absolutely. We didn't even touch on that. Miss Flitworth had a fiancé who died in the mountains one winter. And she kept her wedding dress. Oh, heck, was that the silk from her dress or her veil? Yeah. Oh, I didn't even know that. I'm not good at math. Two plus two is five. <laughs> Back in Ankh-Morpork, Windle's group and the University Wizards have been fighting the mall. <laughs> I'm sorry, just that sentence. <laughs> <laughs> fighting the mall. And the Dean casts several powerful destructive spells to destroy it. But the mall has collapsed the only escape tunnel. Just before the spells obliterate them all, Schleppel the Boogeyman breaks through his compulsive need to hide. With his full monstrously massive form, he clears the exit just in time for everyone to escape. I did not remember Schleppel at all from the, my first time reading this book. But he's great. Mm-hmm. I really like Schleppel him. and Ixalite. Real MVPs. I do appreciate all the wizards, like, absolute horror and seeing Shuffle, and they're like, we need to, like, put him back. I mean, he is a boogeyman. They're, like, being scary uh, is their main function. Put him back. Uh, they're like, yeah, thank you, but can you go in the basement, please? Death goes to Azrael, and despite the protestations of the auditors, petitions the Lord of Deaths to provide a little extra time. And Azrael agrees just his whole his whole speech there specifically for the sake of prisoners and the flight of birds and then and then right after that lord what can the harvest hope for if not for the care of the reaper man like this book is so friggin good <laughs> like just there goes my heart i i didn't need that for all his inability to properly express emotions death does care and that's something that really resonates, especially for me as somebody who has difficulty with emotions and like has had to learn how to properly express themselves. I imagine that this death actually strikes a chord with a lot of neurodivergent folks as being a very relatable character. And like, can we talk about Azrael for a bit? Like, a skeleton man so big that galaxies are like raindrops to him is that's pretty mega. Yeah, I actually, I actually have the have the quote. There are a billion deaths, but they are all aspects of the one death. Azrael, the great attractor. The death of universes. The beginning and end of time. Yes, so good. This whole scene, so good. So good. He's got a clock with a minute hand, millennium hand, and eon hand. And when they align, it's happy land, powerful man, universe man. (laughs) That is all. So, with the extra time, Death takes Miss Flitworth out to the Harvest Dance, where they spend the entire night dancing together. Yet at the end, Death reveals that she actually passed away near the start of the evening. As a parting gift, he brings her through time to the mountainside where her old fiancé passed away years ago, letting them journey to the beyond together. So, Schleppel takes up residence in the university cellar, Ludmilla and Lupine begin some sort of relationship. 
and Windle walks out into the city to finally fade away. Death returns to his domain and adds a new decoration, grand fields of golden wheat, a reminder of the time that he spent as a mortal and the care he must take as the Reaper Man. What a way to end the year. Yeah. Dang. Yeah, we're definitely ending on a strong one. And it's, I don't know, this book just like really stuck with me in a way I don't know if the other Discworld books have yet. Because there are some books where I finish reading them and I'm like, oh. And a lot of the times I like need to go back and reread them because like I'm not ready for them to be over yet. I need to like sit with them more emotionally. And this was one of those. Definitely holds up to rereading, at least for me. If I get the chance to go out and buy a Discworld book out of the ones we've read, it would probably be this one. Keep in mind, though, that there are a few that I missed. Oh, one extra note, uh, because this took me entirely too long to piece together. There's a running gag that Windlepoons' undead eyes look like gimlets, to which people respond, like that dwarf over on Cable Street? A uh, gimlet eye is a slang term for hostile eye contact, and the dwarf is presumably Gimli, as in Lord of the Rings. That would have taken cool. me some time <laughs> to piece together, but I am incredibly amused. I should mention that in addition to the slightly seductive skeleton on the cover of the book I have, there's also a slightly smaller wizard in the background with, like, the most terrifying eyes. Cover art. I need to see it. Oh my. Oh, that must be Sal. This is great audio. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) We have been doing this podcast for a whole year. When did we start? January 2019. Dang. Yeah, you and I actually tried to start this a few months earlier, I think like back in August 2018, but like circumstances conspired against us. Yeah, it wasn't it and, wasn't a fun time. And Liz, you joined us in February, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know I was not there for the first one. I'm glad it all worked out in the end. This has been a, a fun ride. And I like having a good reason to read a bunch of books I wouldn't have necessarily gotten around to because... My bookshelf is already a little too full. (laughs) Big mood. I had to buy a second bookshelf. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so glad that you two have helped me take this opportunity to comb back through them. I'm growing. Yeah, I'm growing to love the series, too. It's me, too. Yay. Uh, Some stuff about the podcast itself. Uh, First off, the casting call segment. It was a good idea, I think, but doing it properly really hinges on knowing a lot of different actors, which we do not. And crowdsourcing it, asking folks to submit ideas for it was, I think, a bit too much work. Yeah, because it was definitely kind of a project to, like, have to put that together. Yeah, a little behind the scenes aside, I, for one, a couple times had to mid-podcast look up some of the actors and just judge (laughs) by faces, which really isn't the best way to go about things. I still hold that even though he has an American accent, and that's really not going to be great for it, John Mulaney is the perfect rinse wind. (laughs) yeah i like that if they do an adaptation of any of the rincewind books and everybody else has an english accent but he's just like john (laughs) laney i I feel like he's done a bit on that before and not just the uh the feminine hips i'm sensitive about that one (laughs) a couple comments that we've gotten Ooh, we helped at least one person get the economics joke from way back in color of magic 
Oh. <laughs> oh yeah. I want to give a shout out to Doset2015 on YouTube, who has left a comment on, I think, pretty much every video, and I appreciate them. Yeah, I saw those. That makes us very happy. Thank you. For like a more recent one, Dan D on Twitter, on the Eric episode, thought we were a little unfair, and that's probably an accurate assessment. Yeah, and I think it's, ultimately, this is all a matter of opinions on art. So I think it's natural if we disagree with each other in the audience sometimes. Dandy did point out that Eric was originally written to be a graphic novel, and so mm-hmm. probably suffered a little bit in the adaptation to like non-graphic. Yeah, and that's kind of context that like helps understand those kinds of things, which I don't think we talked about when we recorded that. Also, we got better microphones. Oh, God. Whenever I recommend the podcast to, to my friends, I have to say, like, l- listen to a recent episode before you go back to Color of Magic. So it's much like the Discord series itself. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, just a heads up. <laughs> my brother taught me how to build a sound box, and I found out from another podcast that they did a lot of recording of their earlier seasons in the hallway of somebody's house underneath a very heavy blanket. <laughs> <laughs> just like back on podcast stuff real quick. The favorite footnote I still feel is like the best way to end mm-hmm. an episode of a Discworld recap podcast. Mm-hmm. It's it's also been great not having to pick ourselves because we we have our own opinions and sometimes they're like I think this mm. one is the best and Lizer Manning thinks something else is the best and while those are all incredibly valid and all the footnotes are great getting a general consensus really is probably the best way to go about it cuz you can't argue with a pie chart <laughs> I mean you can but you won't get much of a rebuttal <laughs> True enough pie charts poor interlocutors I think it's about time to move towards the end. I think I'm good. I am all ready for this. Quick reminder, we are on Discord. Links usually in the description, as well as the Twitter. Tumblr is where we post a lot of stuff as well, but like, who uses that anymore? Yeah, it's good for memes. If you would be so kind as to give us a like, subscribe, and comment, the engagement on that really helps new people find these episodes. Maybe leave us a review on iTunes if you're so inclined. But like, if you're just listening and hanging out, that's cool too. We appreciate every single one of y'all. We are starting 2020 off with a bang. Check your local library. It's Witches Abroad. Ooh. <laughs> Heck yeah, back into the witch series. Danny, would you be so kind as to read out the favorite footnote? The ability of skinny old ladies to carry huge loads is phenomenal. Studies have shown that an ant can carry 100 times its own weight, but there is no known limit to the lifting power of the average tiny 80-year-old Spanish peasant grandmother. Until next time, the The turtle turtle moves. moves.